0: This is Tom Shrewsbury with Reflections for the Covenant Network. We're all moving at such a fast pace today with so many activities, business and social, and the many demands constantly made for our attention. How often do we teach our children about our faith? How often do they see us pray? And how do we set an example? It's funny how some small incidents stay with you. I remember many years ago... Too many years ago, my mother and I were coming home to the Midwest from California, and I remember to this day where we were and what the scenery was like, and those were the days when we traveled more by car. We were driving through Texas, and I could still see the desert and scrubby hills in the distance when my mother reached in her purse, took something out, and said, Time for my rosary. A very quiet example, but that image is still with me as though it happened yesterday. Two, we also lead by examples, and that brings me to our story for today about a boy named Raymond. Raymond was born in early January, way back in 1894, in a small village near Lodz in Poland. He was the third of four surviving sons of Julius and Maria who were devout in their faith and also led by example of how the boys should live, and that sacrifice was an important part in loving and serving God. Raymond and the other boys were like everyday normal boys. Raymond was perhaps a little more humble than most boys, but was also the most mischievous in a funny kind of way, causing his mother to often ask, "'What is going to become of you?' Well, in spite of his pranks, he also tended to be very religious. He even had set up his own small altar in his room where he would frequently be found kneeling and saying his prayers in front of a statue of the Virgin Mary." Well, one day, Raymond came out of his room with his eyes red from tears, and his mother questioned him as to the reason, but he avoided answering. Firmly, Maria told him not to be disobedient, and then, following a pause, he told her that since she had often worried what would become of him, he had gone to his little altar in his room and asked the Virgin the same question. And later in church, he again asked her the same question. Now very serious in his conversation, without the slightest hint of humor, he said that he had gone to the church and had repeated the question, and then the Virgin Mary appeared to him holding two crowns, one white and one red. He said, the white crown symbolized that I would always remain pure, and the red crown would be that of a martyr, and Holding the white crown in one hand and the red crown in the other, she asked me which crown I would choose. He said, then I answered. I told her I choose both. He said she just smiled at me and then disappeared. He was just ten years old. Retelling the story, his mother said that he was no longer the same light-hearted child, but serious with a fervent desire to serve God and the Madonna. He was an outstanding student in school, and as the years passed, and then still in school, a minor seminary opened not too far away, and both Raymond and his older brother Francis expressed a desire to enter the seminary in the order of St. Francis much to the delight of their parents. And his brother also entered later. Well, they entered the seminary and worked hard over the next several years. Raymond excelled, brilliant in mathematics and science, earning the respect of his teachers to expand his training in philosophy and theology. And as he did, he also grew in spirituality. But never far from his mind was that vision of the virgin when he was just ten years old. Well, later, Raymond and his brother went to the provincial and expressed their desire to officially enter the novitiate, and the next day Raymond's new name would be forever remembered as he became Friar Maximilian Colby. The years in the seminary were passing brilliantly except for the health of Friar Maximilian whose lifelong battle with tuberculosis was just getting underway. His brilliance did not go unnoticed and his superiors wanted to send him to Rome for further study, but young Maximilian was concerned that his health would be a deterrent to their wishes, but they remained firm in their belief that he should go. In Rome, he received a doctorate in philosophy from the Gregorian University and was ordained a priest in 1918 and received a second doctorate in theology from the International Seraphic College of the Franciscans. Even with all of his accomplishments, it's been written that he developed fully the determination to do the will of God in all his actions and to bring all souls to Christ through the Immaculata, the Immaculate Heart of Mary. He made a religious pledge to a young nun about whom he had heard, who died at an early age and whom he considered deserving of sainthood, that he would devoutly and faithfully pray that she would be raised to the glory of the angels on the condition that she would take charge of his future efforts. And, uh, Incidentally, yes, the little nun would later be known as St. Therese of Lisieux, the little flower, and the bargain was to be kept. 1917 marked an increase in attacks on the church to the great distress of Maximilian Colby, who felt that there should be an organization to react as a deterrent, and he had as his vision what needed to be done and an idea of how to do it. His task would be the organization and founding of what was to be known as, initially, the Militia of Mary Immaculate. Part of the motivation was the story of Alphonse Ratisbon, an anti-Catholic Jewish man who was converted by the miraculous medal as given to St. Catherine Library by Our Lady in an appearance back in 19 or 1831. But that's a story for another day. However, it was Maximilian's belief that if this medal could soften the heart of a non-Christian, she could perform the same miracle for other non-believers. So, it was in 1917 that Maximilian Colby first started discussing the concept of such an organization with other friends in the seminary, who also became interested in his idea, suggesting that each one discuss this with his own spiritual advisor to make certain that this was a practical opportunity. They held their first meeting on October 17, 1917. Just three days after the miracle of the sun at Fatima, six seminarians and one priest attended that first meeting, and standing before a statue of the Blessed Virgin with its lighted candles, Maximilian read the objectives of their militia, and they fixed their names to the document before going to the chapel, where they each received a miraculous medal as a symbol of their organization. As the first members of the militia, their goal was, as stated, and I quote, to conquer for Christ all souls in the entire world to the end of time through the Immaculate Mother. Maximilian did not intend the organization just for the Polish or Italians, but for the entire world. Well, the first steps were simple. They would consist of prayer and the distribution of the miraculous medal, and a kind of newspaper would be developed to foster greater faith and devotion. By the end of the year, the small group had grown to 25 members. Three years later, this army, if you will, of Maximilian had grown to 450, and by 1939, They had increased to almost 700,000 participants, ultimately reaching a membership of more than 2 million people. But I'm getting ahead of my story. It should be emphasized that Maximilian, always faithful to the vows of obedience, never did anything without permission from his superiors. He was sidelined frequently with his poor health, And he wanted to publicize his organization with a periodical. It would be called The Night, K-N-I-G-H-T, of the Immaculata, a special publication. But there was a problem of funding. There was no money available. So he decided to beg. But that was not the only difficulty. What about printing, writing, paper, materials, costs of all kinds, and where would the work be done? but he pursued with his dream. Writing, editing, publishing cost money, and when the bills came for the first edition, there was no money available to pay the printers and the suppliers. A parish priest in Krakow sent a contribution but hardly made a dent. So Maximilian went to the Madonna herself to pray for her intercession on his knees before the altar. He felt he had failed her, but his prayers were deep and they were heard. Looking up, he saw an envelope, and written there was a message. It read, For thee, O Immaculate Mother. He opened the envelope and found a contribution exactly in the amount he was short. The superiors at the monastery were amazed, and of course gave him permission to pay off the debt for the first issue. It appeared that perhaps he would do better to print the review in a different location and receive permission from his superiors to find another spot to operate his own printing press and handle the complete operation and supervision himself. But again, what about the money? Even doing his own work with his own volunteers, there would be considerable expense. So again, he prayed to Mary Immaculate. Shortly thereafter, there was a visitor from the United States, someone from a well-to-do area who was present when many of the friars in Maximilian's new location expressed doubt as to the success of the project, particularly with such a substantial lack of funds. Well, the man providentially listened intently and praised the concept and work and felt that the Immaculata herself was pleased. Words are easy, action is rare, but to accentuate his position, the man handed Maximilian a check in the amount of a $100,000, and the paper was up and running. The demand soon exceeded the primitive presses, but now there was a need for a new type of press, a new type of linotype press, but there was no one trained in the operation of this new machine. But Mary Immaculate proved again that she had a very watchful motherly eye on Maximilian. A young man showed up at the monastery asking to be admitted to the community as a brother. Oh, yes, he did have a talent. He was a specialist in the operation of a linotype press. The popularity of the publication was growing and even attracting more people to the religious life. Maximilian had another physical relapse with his tuberculosis and was sidelined for an extended period, and the need was obvious for a larger, more intense location. So Maximilian looked around and found a suitable site owned by a prince that would be a perfect location on which to build. Since it was for Mary, Maximilian moved a statue of the Immaculata to the property before approaching the owner and after negotiations settled on a reasonable purchase price, but when Maximilian took the information to his superior, the superior was not agreeable to the terms. As you can imagine, Maximilian was broken-hearted and returned to the prince with the word that the deal was off, and there was Mary's statue where Maximilian had placed it. However, she again came to the aid of her son, Maximilian, The prince said, "'Well, if you can't buy it, I'll just give it to you.'" So in October of 1927, Father Maximilian and a few of his religious brothers arrived at the site. It was primitive and rough at first. Often the little group slept without a roof over their heads. But bit by bit and piece by piece, the equipment arrived, and the property was dedicated to Our Lady on December 7, 1927. It was to be a city. It was to have a name, a Polish name. It would be called Nipopanakalau, the city of the Immaculata. This was her city, the Immaculata's, and it would not be primitive for long. Through the works and the efforts of Father Maximilian Colby, Mary's city would grow to unbelievable heights. Naturally, the first buildings were to house the production of the night's newsletters, and in 1929, a college was built for young men seeking to become religious members of the order, followed by more buildings to house the novices and the other members of the staff. The growth made necessary for a hospital of a hundred beds, an electric generating plant, as well as their own fire department, which of course was staffed by the brothers. Father Maximilian was assisted in his work by his younger brother, now Father Alphonsus, and the city kept growing as a site dedicated to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Through the efforts of Father Maximilian Colby and his aides, by 1938 there were 762 conventional Franciscans, 13 of whom were priests, 609 lay brothers, and 140 scholastics. Nipakalanoa was now the largest single religious community in the entire world. Publication of the Night of the Immaculata also increased from the first hand-operated press to, new, to nearly one million copies by 1939. In addition to the Knights of the Immaculata, more religious publications were created with the numbers in the hundreds of thousands. Not only were they published in Polish, but in other languages throughout the world, including Arabic. And it has been written, All of this was set in motion by a sickly, unassuming religious who was suffering from tuberculosis. When questioned about Nepokalano, Father Maximilian would simply state, The principal reason was for the sanctification of the brothers and our own sanctification. We must never forget this. We must first be saints ourselves. Here it is to convert and to sanctify souls under the protection and by the mediation of the Immaculata. An interesting point is that in spite of their non-stop activities and works in progress, Father Maximilian and his associates spent no less than three and a half hours a day in prayer and meditation. As a side issue, it may well be for us to ask how many of us spend at least a half an hour a day in prayer and meditation for what is important to us. Well, not content with what he accomplished, the former little Raymond Colby was not satisfied with what he had done. He was looking for more needs to be met for Christ and his mother. His works in Poland were well under way. He wished not to just give glory to the Immaculata in his own country, but throughout the whole world. The next question would be, what country comes next? Well, perhaps not so scientific as to the choice, but undoubtedly with the help of the Immaculata, just three years after the founding of the city in Poland, Father Maximilian was riding a train and met several Japanese students. Naturally, he introduced them to the Virgin with the Miraculous Medals, which he gave them, and they returned the favor by giving him good luck charms. As a result of this meeting, he felt the need to take Christ and Mary to Japan and replace good luck charms with the Miraculous Medal. He told his superior of his idea, and he was asked if he had any money. Well, the answer was no. And then the superior questioned him by saying, Do you speak Japanese? And the answer, well, of course, it was no again. And the next question was, do you know anyone in Japan? Same answer, no. But Father Maximilian added, But through the grace of God, I will. Perhaps it was divine intervention that prompted the superior to finally agree. And on February 26, 1930, Father Maximilian and four religious brothers left for Japan, stopping off in Rome, where Pope Pius XI gave them his apostolic blessing. And after a visit to Lisieux to visit the grave of St. Therese, they left for Japan, with no particular city in mind, they left that choice to the Blessed Mother. They met with the apostolic delegate, who suggested the city of Nagasaki, where they met with a local bishop, who gave his permission, since Father Maximilian held two doctorates, he could serve as a professor in the seminary. Well, time doesn't permit the story of all they did and all they accomplished in Japan, as well as the suffering they endured as they started another city of nipokalano It was difficult at first, and their lodging was so basic that when it snowed, Father Maximilian and the brothers would have to pull the bedclothes higher to keep the snow off their faces. Slowly but surely, they were succeeding. They found people, including a Methodist minister who helped them translate the paper into Japanese. With a hand-working press, the first edition was finished in a month's time, and with all of the difficulties present, They were now attracting new brothers. But Father Maximilian had his eyes on India and traveled there to start another city, and while he was waiting to meet with the archbishop, he was seated next to a statue of St. Therese, and in prayer he reminded her of the pact he considered they had made, and as he did, a petal from the roses in front of the statue fell in his lap. Well, the war was to delay the opening, and Father returned to Japan. Shortly he was recalled to meet with his superiors in Poland, and close to 70,000 papers were now being distributed with other new publications for young men seeking to become brothers with Christ. His return to Poland was providential because his health was deteriorating and he was suffering multiple hemorrhages. He was never to return to Japan, but was again managing the city of Nipukolano, where, in addition to all they were accomplishing, the circulation of the paper was now up to about one million a week. During an evening in the city of the Immaculata, Father Maximilian confided to a small group of his closest friends with tears in his eyes. He, he confided to them, I have been given an assurance of heaven. Well, the group was filled with questions for him, but Father said only, What I have said happened in Japan. I will say no more. I have revealed my secret to you so as to strengthen your courage and your spiritual energy for the difficulties ahead. He also told them, My dear sons, do not aspire to extraordinary things but simply do the will of God. A little over two years later, the German army invaded Poland to start World War II, and the Germans viewed the Immaculata in the city as anti-German, and it was occupied by the militia, but Father Maximilian was not idle. He began to organize a shelter for about 3,000 refugees, among whom were about 2,000 Jews, and he said, Our mission is among them, in the difficult days that lie ahead. He was targeted by the Nazis and arrested more than once. He was again arrested and sent to a notorious prison camp where he was mercilessly beaten for wearing his habit and displaying his rosary. He was asked if he he believed in Christ, and every time he answered yes, he was beaten with more heartless ferocity. Later, he was shipped to Auschwitz, where his courage and humanity would be forever remembered by people of goodwill everywhere. A prisoner had escaped, and ten prisoners were to be executed as a reprisal. You know the story. A man with a family wept when he was one of those selected, wept for his family, and Maximilian Colby came forward and asked permission to change places with the family man. Thunderstruck the commandant, agreed, and Father Maximilian and several others were placed in a cell to starve to death. Those in the know tell of hearing almost continuously prayers, chants, and religious hymns coming from the death cell as one by one the prisoners left this earth. After more than a week, those surviving, including Father Maximilian Colby, were given a lethal ejection and their bodies were burned. It was the 14th of August in 1941. Father Maximilian died and was just 47 years old. Appropriately, he died on the feast of Our Lady's Assumption. Though most of us know about this sacrifice of Father Maximilian, but that was just one part of what he gave to the world. You see, in addition to all that he accomplished in his lifetime, the legacy has continued. In 1945, the cities of Nagasaki and Hiroshima were destroyed by the atomic bomb. The buildings leveled untold thousands of deaths, but one area was left intact, complete with its statue of the Virgin Mary, the village of Nipakalano, which became an orphanage and a kind of hospital for survivors of man's inhumanity to man. Of all the places in the world where he could have gone, is it not probable that it was Our Lady who led him there to provide a sanctuary for what was to come? Father Colby was beatified by Pope Paul VI in 1971 and canonized a saint by Pope John Paul II in October of 1982. Somehow he felt drawn to the message of the miraculous medal, just as just as Maximilian Colby had so many years ago, with its inscription, O Mary conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee. In looking at the life of St. Maximilian Colby, one must go back to the vision he had at such an early age when she offered him a choice of two crowns, the White Crown of Purity, or the red crown of martyrdom, to which he said, I will take both. What would have been our answer, and how will God remember us? St. Maximilian Colby, pray for us. This is Tom Shrewsbury with Reflections for the Covenant Network.